So we come to this conversation, the conversation at the burning bush. And we find a dialogue between God and Moses. And we started that conversation last week on Easter Sunday, and we were looking at the promise that God made to be a deliverer for his people. But we're looking at the whole conversation now, the whole interchange between God and Moses. And I want to share a few lyrics from a song with you because it sort of will help us understand the, the central message of what God is driving home for Moses and for us this morning. This is a song called Never Alone by uh, Jesse Bonanno. And the, the lyrics of the song are this. This is from verse 2. He says, you're never alone. Like a tear in the ocean or a star on a clear winter night, you're never alone. When the cor- courage you needed has been all but defeated in you, I'll do anything I can do to show you my love and comfort you. When you can't seem to find your way home and when life gets too hard to face on your own, I will stand as a light through your darkest unknown. I will walk with you so you're never alone. Uh, That's a great song to put on a CD for a girl if you're trying to date a girl uh, or if you're married for your wife. Uh, It's also a song that a young woman chose to sing to her groom on their wedding. So in the middle of their wedding service, there's a YouTube video of her singing this song to her groom. And it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And she has, like, nerves of steel, for sure. Uh, she makes it all the way through the song. It's, it's a gorgeous song that essentially affirms a lot of what our wedding vows say. For better or worse, for richer or poorer, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be present with you. You'll be able to depend on my presence. The assumption being, if I'm present with you, What's dark will not be so dark. What's hard will not be so hard. You will not be alone, and your life will be better for it. We promise that when we get married. We also, there's sort of unspoken assumptions when you build close friendships and relationships that you're not going to be alone anymore, and there's, there's some, some value and some safety in not being alone. But really, it's a promise. If you think about it, we do make those promises, those of us who are married, but it is a promise that we are actually not able to fully keep. It's a promise that we're wired to desire. We want to not be alone. We want to have a presence that will bring peace and comfort and will bring light when it's dark and will help us when things are hard and will be there to share joy with us. We want that. We're wired for it. We desire it. And so we pledge to be that for one another in marriage. But the reality is we are fallen and we can't ever fulfill that promise. But it's a promise that's supposed to point to When you think about marriage and the promises of marriage, it points to the one who makes that same promise, and he fulfills it. Moses is promised here by God, I'll be with you. And that's supposed to change everything. It does change everything, whether Moses realizes it or not. Moses doesn't realize it. And so he argues with God here. He raises some objections to God about, that's not going to be enough, that can't be enough. But the reality is, is that God is saying, my presence, my powerful presence, it will be with you and it will change everything for you. And so what I want us to do this morning is as we look at this conversation that Moses and God are having together, knowing that the ultimate point that God is making is that he is pledging his presence. He's saying, I'll be present with you. I want us to look and see how Moses reacts to that. And I want us to identify with Moses. But I also want us to see how God reacts to Moses' reaction and be encouraged by how God reacts. And then I want us to see what God's calling us to this morning, us as a family. All right, so looking at this conversation that Moses is having with God here. What we're going to do, first I want you to remind you, and that's why we read, just to give you the whole context, I really want you to notice verse 10. Here's the task that Moses is given, all right? After that whole conversation that we looked at last week, 
the whole first part of the conversation, the end of what God tells him is, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So that's the task. God says, I'm going to use you to take my people out of Egypt. All right, I want us to appreciate what God is saying and calling him to. Moses, you have been spending, as we talked about last week, the last 40 years as a family man taking care of your father-in-law's sheep. You live with your father-in-law. You take care of his sheep. You have a family. The majority of your life, you have been this shepherd. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is go to the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East today and tell him that you're coming to take his slaves away. I want us to appreciate that what God is asking Moses to do is weighty and seemingly impossible, at least highly improbable. And the element of danger and failure is, uh, the, ex- the expectation of uh, danger and of failure is high. And so it, it should on some level make sense to us. We should be able to empathize with Moses because do you know what, how Moses feels about the job he's just been given? He feels insecure. He feels inept. He feels afraid. He feels intimidated. Now what I want you to do is put yourself in his situation. Wouldn't you feel afraid? Wouldn't you feel intimidated? Wouldn't you feel insecure? How could you not? You're being asked to do something that is completely outside of your ability. It's natural to respond to that with fear, insecurity, with this intimidation. But then what does God say to him in his response of fear? We have to look at that. What does God say to him? How does God address that? But regardless, what we're going to do right now is we're going to look at the, with, with knowing the weight of what God has just asked him to do, the expectation that God has just said, this is what I'm, I want you to do. I want you to go do this improbable thing, this impossible thing. What Moses does Im- immediately is start raising objections. He raises four objections. Let's look at them together this morning. I want us to look at them empathizing with Moses, but realizing that Moses is going about this the wrong way but we should be able to identify with how he's going about it. All right, look with me, if you will, at verse 11 of chapter 3. So Moses has just heard what his task is, and his response is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? The first objection is, I'm insignificant. Surely I'm not who you want to go, God. I'm a shepherd taking care of my father-in-law's sheep. I'm too insignificant. There's no way... You expect me or desire me even to go and to do this. Who am I? One thing I I love about this text is what God, we'll look at God's response in just a few minutes, but honestly, God does not say, oh, Moses, you're way better than you realize. Oh, Moses, you're so hard on yourself. No, you know what God says is, yeah. (laughs) You're insignificant. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah that's, that's right. And that doesn't pertain to, to my plan at all. Like, that doesn't affect my plan at all. You're missing it, Moses. Like, this is a God-dependent plan, not a Moses-dependent plan. And you'll start to expound that for Moses. But it's a, Moses assumes, God, you're either going to have to change your mind or you're going to have to change me. And God says, no, neither. I'm not going to do that. And so we'll look at God's response in a few minutes. But that's his first objection is, surely not me, I'm insignificant. And then look with me at verse 13. So then God 
he responds to God after God says he's going to be with him, give him his presence. Then Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I want you to know, as we get to this section, we'll look at God's response when he tells them his name, and we could spend a lot of time on that. We don't have time this morning to really delve deep into that. But I want to look at the objection of Moses here. He's saying, essentially, God, I don't have enough information. If you think I'm the one, I don't know enough to do this. I don't have a firm enough grip or grasp on what I need to know to be able to accomplish what you're asking me to do. I don't even know the message you want me to tell, which, by the way, is not true, right? Do you hear that as we were reading it? We'll look at God's response in a minute. But he pretty much just retells him, in part, what he already told him in the same conversation. And yet Moses says, no, I just don't, I don't know enough. I can't do this. I don't have enough information. I, I can't be the one. So I'm insignificant and I'm ill-informed. I'm ignorant. I can't be the guy. It can't be me. That's his next objection. His third objection, if you look with me, now I want you to, to realize when, we'll look at God's response in a minute, but just so you know, in summary here, God essentially reminds him and then also tells him what's coming. He says, this is how it's going to be. This is exactly what's going to happen. And then in response to that, Moses says, but behold, verse 1 of chapter 4 they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying to God, God, I know you think they're going to listen to me, but you're wrong. They're not. I've played this out in my mind. It's not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. I know what I would say if a guy like me showed up and said this. God, you're wrong. I'm insignificant, I'm ill-informed, and... It's just not going to go the way you say it's going to go. I don't trust you. It can't possibly go that way. And so then the next objection he raises, so God addresses that objection. And then the fourth objection that he raises is in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. It's like we've circled back around. He's like, you still don't realize who I am, God. I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm not the guy. You, you hear what he's saying? He's saying, God, up until, the, you, up until you met me in this burning bush, I was not eloquent and I couldn't speak well. And we've been together at this bush for maximum 30 minutes, still the same guy. Still can't speak well. It's surely not me. Surely it's not me. And then God addresses that as well. But you see where it's starting to progress here. It's like, well, God, who am I? Surely this isn't this isn't what you really plan to do. And then he goes a little further, like, well, well, God, if it's really me, well, I don't know enough. So it's definitely, it's probably not me. I think you need to look for somebody else. God, have you really thought about what you're, what you're saying here? I don't think it's going to play out the way that it's going to play out. Why do you keep saying I have to do this, God? I'm not the guy, right? And then we get to verse 13. And it gets to where um, everything kind of changes at verse 13. Because now... In response to God one last time, he doesn't have an objection. He just says, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. He just cuts right to the chase. Please send someone else. All the commentators like to draw attention to the fact that in this one conversation, you have something that sounds similar, or actually very dissimilar, to Isaiah. Remember when Isaiah hears from God, he says, here am I, Lord, send me. Moses says, here I am, Lord, please send someone else. Right? He just, he, he says that to God. And then God's responses begin to change. But I want us to empathize with Moses first. Moses is terrified. 
And so his responses are responses of fear. He says, I, I, don't, I can't do this on my own. And what, at every point, as you're, as you're listening and you're seeing the way that Moses is processing it, he's like, well, I don't have the words to say. Or they're not going to believe the words that I say. Or I won't say them well enough. He hasn't gotten the point that, that, that God made it at the very beginning of the conversation. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. Moses is still thinking it's all about whether or not I can accomplish this myself. And so he completely misses it. And I want us to look at God's responses to Moses quickly here. Look with me at verse 12. So Moses says, you know, who am I? I'm insignificant. Who am I? I can't be the guy. And God says, but I will be with you. So the first thing God says to him in response to his objections is, but I will be with you. Everything else that God says after, but I will be with you, is to lovingly try and help Moses come to a place of trusting that God will be with him. All the rest of it. He says, I will be with you. Uh, Alec Motier in his commentary said this. He said, God accepted Moses, and he accepted Moses' sense of inadequacy as one of the facts of the situation, but then contradicted it uh, by the adequacy of his own presence. He says, I acknowledge, Moses, you are inadequate, but I'm sufficient. I'm sufficient. That's the response that he gives initially here uh, to Moses. Moses says, surely, God, you're going to change your mind or you're going to change me. And God says, no, I'm not. I'm going to be with you. And then we move on to his response to the second objection that Moses raises, where Moses says, well, I'm ill-informed. I don't know enough. And God lovingly and very patiently reminds him. You notice that when he talks about his name, he says, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And who is I am? I am as the covenant God of your forefathers. And God already told him, remember he told Moses who he was. I'm the God of your, of your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses stopped looking at the bush and he cowered because he knew who God was. God says, you know who I am and they're going to know who I am. I'm the faithful God of my family. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only that, you need to know who I am, but you also need to remember the message. And he goes through that whole message again, including all of those people that already live in the, in, in the, the land, like the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Perizzites. And he says, it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. He tells him the message. Remember the message I just told you, Moses? Here it is again. This is the message you're going to take to him. And then he goes beyond that and he says, you didn't even ask me how it's going to go down, but here's how it's going to go down. Here's what it's going to look like. And it's, it's a, a snapshot of what we're going to see in the coming months as the tensions build between God's people and God bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. He, he sort of foretells uh, the fact that there's going to be these plagues and that they're going to plunder the Egyptians as they leave. He tells them all this. Why, why does he tell him all this? Moses doesn't need to know anything but the message that God told him to take. God patiently and lovingly gives him more than he needs because he loves Moses. It's about caring for Moses, patiently and lovingly caring for Moses, calming his fears. And then we see that with even more clarity when we look at the next objection in God's response, which happens after God says, this is exactly what's going to happen. And and Moses says in verse 1 of chapter 4, they won't believe me. They won't listen to my voice. They're going to tell me the Lord did not appear to you. You're wrong, God. You know how God responds to Moses? I have a five-year-old, a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and an 18-month-old. And all three of them, the 18-month-old, mostly with his eyes, he doesn't have the vocabulary yet, they all tell me I'm wrong at times, right? 
Sometimes I am, theoretically. But regardless, what they say to me is, like, at times I'll be like, Dad, you're wrong. No, it's not like that. No, it didn't happen. That wasn't, you know my response to them, almost universally, go to your room. <laughs> right? Go to your room. I want you to think about how, how does God respond? Not like that. Do you know what God does? We hear Moses says, God, you're wrong. It's not going to go down like that. You're wrong. He gives him these three signs. He says, Moses, what's in your hand? I've got the staff. Throw it on the ground. Turns into a snake. Moses runs away. Scary snake. He says, Moses, take it by the tail, which is actually very bad advice unless God turned your staff into a snake. And he picks it up and it turns back into a staff. He says, I'm going to give you that one. Now put your hand inside your cloak. Take it out. You see what it looks like? Put it back again and it's clean. And you know what? On top of that, I'm going to, when you pick up some water from the Nile, it's going to turn to blood when you pour it out. There are two ways for us to approach this. Did Moses find a flaw in God's plan? He's like, oh, well, that's a good point, Moses. They may not believe you. Let's brainstorm this and find a couple different signs I can give to you so that you can have a more compelling uh, conversation with Pharaoh. No. Do you realize that those three signs are not about accomplishing God's uh, mission? When God said, I'm going to send you in, and this is what's going to happen, it was going to happen. Why does God give Moses these signs? It's because he patiently loves him. The signs are for Moses. God uses them in the conversation with Pharaoh. But Moses is afraid, and so God gives him these signs to calm his fears, to calm his anxieties, to patiently and lovingly walk alongside Moses and not say, go to your room, but to lovingly encourage him so that he would have more and more emotional fortitude for the job that God's calling him to. God's loving him and caring him for him in this. But Moses doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's got another, uh, he's got this other, this fourth objection. He says, you just, you just got the wrong guy. He says that in verse 10. And then you can tell the tone changes a bit. The tone changes and God says, who made your mouth? I made your mouth. If I want to use your mouth to communicate a message, I think you can trust the one that made your mouth to use your mouth to communicate the message. Now go. It's still not go to your room, but it's getting a little more stern, right? And then what does Moses say in response to that? He says, here I am. Send somebody else. Please send somebody else. And then that next, that next verse is the one, and then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Things shifted in the conversation. I want you to think about the context again. There's a fire, there's a burning bush, and it's on fire, but it's not consuming the bush. But God is a consuming fire. He is holy. And so God's anger is kindled, and the fire on the bush consumes the whole mountain, and Moses is burned alive, and he dies. Why not? That's what we should expect. And yet in his anger, God says to him, okay, your brother speaks well. I'm already bringing him out. He's going to go with you. You're not going to have to do the public speaking, but you're going. I'm sending you. Do you see the patience of God with Moses? 
these four objections, what we see is God says, I'll be with you. And then he patiently loves on Moses and he patiently loves on Moses and cares for Moses. And then he's a little more stern with Moses, but he still loves him. And then he's angry with Moses and he still loves him. And Moses still goes. God still accomplishes his purposes. God chose Moses and he used Moses. Now what I want us to think about is from our own vantage point, do we see ourselves as Moses? Do you see how much we are Moses? When God says, I have a task for you, and you say, I feel too insignificant for this. God says, I have, you're going to be a husband to this wife. You're in this marriage. I want you to be this kind of husband to this wife. I feel insignificant. I feel like I can't do this. You're to be this type of wife to your husband. I'm t- I can't do it. I can't do it. I want to give you these children. You need to care for these children. I, I, I can't do it. Who am I? to represent Jesus to this woman? Who am I to represent Jesus to these children? I can't do it. And what does God tell us every time? I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be present with you. Yet we, we doubt him. And we struggle. And we say, well, I, just, I, I don't know enough, God. How could you possibly use me in the life of these people? I, I don't know enough. I, I'm, not, I'm not ready. I'm ill-suited. I can't do this. God says, I'm going to be with you. And I've spoken and you know who I am. And you can know more and more about how to love the people that I put in your life because I've told you. I've confirmed to you. Here's the message. Here's how you should love your wife. Here's how much Jesus has loved you. That's how you're going to love her. So the conversation goes, and then we say, well, well God, you're, just, you're wrong. There's no, way, there's no way that my life is going to be as full as you're promising me it's going to be. I look at it, and I think, yes, I mean, I've, I've got this family, but if, if I don't have X number of dollars or if I don't get this certain promotion, there's no way my life is going to have the fulfillment that you've told me that it is. You're just wrong. Or if I don't carry on this relationship with this old boyfriend of mine that we're reconnected with on Facebook, then I'm never going to feel like anyone loves me or cherishes me because my husband doesn't notice me anymore. There's no way my life can be full if I can't have that. You're wrong, God. You're wrong. We say things like that or we think things like that to God. And ultimately we say, just choose somebody else. I can't do it. I can't do it. Please choose somebody else. We're like Moses. Unfortunately, God is like God. And he's patient with us. And he says, I'll be with you. And he says, my presence with you will shape everything for you. I'm not going to change you. I'm not going to change my mind. But I'm going to be present with you, and that's going to change everything. Everything's going to be changed. But you're going to be the same, dependent on me trusting that my presence with you, me walking with you, is exactly what you need. Now, I want us to think about this, what God is calling us to. He's calling Moses to the same thing. Trust the presence of God. Trust when God says, I'll be with you, that that's good news, and it's exactly what you need. I mean, in the the end, if you look with me at verse 12, this is what God says to Moses. He says, but I will be with you. And he says, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The call to trust the presence of God is a call to faith. Think about what God is saying to Moses. He's saying, I'll be with you. And you know the sign that you can look for is that you'll be back on this mountain worshiping me. What we expect is that God would say, I will be with you. Now throw that staff down and you'll see immediately how it turns into a snake. And because it immediately turned into a snake, you should immediately trust me. 
No, he's calling him to faith. He's saying, you know, when you look back after however many days it takes and you're on this mountain again with people, you'll look back and see how faithful I am. You'll look back and see how I've cared for you. You'll look back and see that my presence was exactly what you needed. And so it's a call to faith. It's a call to faith. And one thing I want to, as we are going to be approaching the Lord's table this morning together, it's not just a call to general faith, it's a call to faith in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to run through this, I'm going to have to run through it a little, a little quickly, uh, but I want you to track with me. Moses was to Israel what Jesus is to us, but Jesus is so much better. Moses, the, the job that Moses was being given was to lead people to freedom. And the job that Jesus took on himself was to accomplish our freedom. Hebrews helps us understand that Jesus is the better Moses. I want you to think about the one who promises to be present with us. Remember Jesus says in Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. I, you will never be alone. I will always be with you. He is that perfect Moses, if you will. He's the true rescuer, as we talked about last week, that comes for his people. Think about his interaction with God when he was about not just to go into a place of danger, but to go to the cross. He doesn't raise an objection to his father. He says, not my will, but yours be done. The better Moses. I want exactly what you want, God. And I'll go there for your people, for us. And then when Jesus was when you think about what Jesus accomplished on the cross as we celebrated it last week, Moses was going to go and he was going to lead the people, yes, but Jesus, he's not just our leader. He is the reason, when you think about who Jesus is, when he was on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The promise that God made that you will never be alone, that you will never be forsaken, is because Jesus took your forsakenness. The promise is to covenant breakers like Moses and like me and like you, people who disobey our, our God and our Father, who owe him our allegiance. Our hope is he will never leave us or forsake us because what we were due, full forsakenness, Jesus took on himself. So this promise that Moses receives, I'll be with you, is a promise that we receive. And for Moses, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus paying for his sin against God, even in this conversation. And his presence promised to us that we're going to be celebrating here shortly, accomplished through what he's done for us, it's the same promise. You're never alone because Jesus took all of the aloneness that you were due in the wrath of God and he endured it for you. So what Jesse Bonanno was looking for what he was trying to promise to a girl, what we promise to one another when we get married, you'll never be alone. There is one who makes that promise. And we're about to celebrate how he fulfilled it for us. Let's pray.